Well, we will uh, we'll pray for the Curdo family. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for the peace that passes understanding, something that only your Holy Spirit can give. Father, the reason for our peace is because we have been made completely right with you by what your Son has done for us. Without, there is, without that, there is no hope in this world. Uh, so, Father, we, we lift up Jeremy, Jeremy's pastor, I mean, um, teacher. Uh, give him the strength to continue uh, in glorifying you and bringing your name to students. We ask that you give him the peace that passes understanding, knowing that <clears throat> not only is his wife free from illness and sickness, but she is free from sin. She is basking in the glory of your son. Yet there is still hope to be had that her cancer-riddled body, though is gone for a little while, she will one day have a resurrection body, one that will no longer experience pain, fear, death, or sin. Father, that is our great hope. You created us in your image and likeness. You created us to have physical and spiritual <coughs> And we look forward to the day that we are resurrected with, with a body that matches the new spirit that you have put inside of us. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Does anybody know, or has anyone ever heard this phrase on the top? Do Calvinists care about the lost? Is this something you've never even heard of? Or is this something that theologically we're just, you know, coming up with terms so that we can have Sunday school classes? <laughs> we, we you've heard it? Yeah. We've had people leave the church because of it. Because they think that because we're Calvinists that we don't care about the lost. Okay. What was the rationale? It, it's just not could not <coughs> that understanding that okay, so if God elects, why? What's the purpose of missions? What's the purpose of going there for? And just because he couldn't make those things fit, sure. couldn't understand what why we would hold to that. Um. Has anyone heard of uh, the name of the person who is called the father of modern missions? His name is William Carey. <coughs> Excuse me. He was um, a part of what's known as the Particular Baptists. Particular. Um, is another word for uh, specific. 
um, they they were people who adhered to the doctrine of particular atonement, hence particular Baptists. <clears throat> What's another word uh, for particular atonement? <clears throat> limited? Yes, limited atonement. That the atonement is limited to a group, to a select group of people, right? Or to a particular group of people. Well, the particular Baptists, um, they were strongly Calvinistic. They, uh, they, they made a point to call themselves particular Baptists because that's really their, that was really their driving force is that they believed in election. That Christ's death was... Grant, the, the outcome of Christ's death was granted only to those who were elect. Now, they didn't say that um, we should therefore not preach to everyone indiscriminately. Uh, no, they, because we don't know who the elect are, they were like, well, let's go. Let's tell everybody. Because if there are elect, we should be telling them. Well, there's a story... <clears throat> And it's kind of debated as to whether or not it truly happened. But <clears throat> 11 years ago, almost to the day, uh, I was participating in uh, a, a study that Doug Searle was putting on called uh, Extension. It was kind of a college-level Bible course or, or, you know, kind of like a seminary-level and one of the questions, one of the assignments that we had to do uh, was to answer this question. And we had books that we had to go through. Um, most of what was written here was uh, uh, a conglomeration of all the study that we had been doing up to this point in this particular class. So uh, though I wrote it, though I put it together, most of these words are not mine. They're combined from a bunch of different sources. But the question is, when William Carey first proposed his missionary enterprise to India, a church leader said, Sit down, young man. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without you, without your aid or mine. <clears throat> Here's the question. If you were William Carey, how would you have responded? Okay, so I'm sure that everybody did their assignment, but I spent over a week just working on this and studying and researching. And yeah, it was 11 years ago, but all that study is still valid. And I still believe the same thing that I wrote. <clears throat> so. I figured that would be a perfect opportunity to use something that I've already studied. So this is what I, in my mind, thought William Carey said in response. Keep in mind, I have no idea what William Carey actually said, because the only thing that's talked about with regard to this is that William Carey was a missionary, and this guy said, sit down. So this is apocryphal. This is, but it's just an idea based upon someone who was first in scripture, 
what might they have said in response? So this is whatever. <coughs> Sir, I do most heartily agree with you regarding our great Lord's sovereignty over all things. He is sovereign over my circumstances and yours. He was sovereign over even the most unlikely messenger, namely Paul. He is also sovereign over even the worst of circumstances. As our Lord explained to his disciples regarding the man who was blind from birth. And that's from John 9, 3. For we know that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. We also know that it is the Lord who works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. That's Proverbs 16.4. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9.15-16. <clears throat> You are quite right to say he does not need my aid or yours. If you might indulge me a slight detour from our discussion, would you not agree that saving faith may be defined as a voluntary turning from all hope and grounds based on self-merit and assuming an attitude of expectancy towards God? Trusting him to do a perfect saving work based only on the merit of Christ. If that be so, how will anyone perform this saving faith if they do not know the merits of Christ? Isn't it true that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him if they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Romans 10, 13-15. And how beautiful is God that he has ordained the manner in which people would be saved from his wrath. Those who were formerly vessels of his wrath, but are now glorious exhibits of his loving kindness, grace, and mercy. They have the honor of being his instruments of the same. The Christian is sent into the world as God's herald and Christ's ambassador to broadcast the message of the gospel as widely as he can. This is both his duty because God commands it and love to our neighbor requires it. And his privilege, because it is a great thing to speak for God. And is it a great thing to take to our neighbor the remedy, the only remedy that can save him from the terrors of spiritual death? Now, may I return to the original point of our discussion? You are correct to say that it is God who saves, and that he saves according to his own purpose, and does not take orders from man in the matter. However, 
I fear you may be neglecting to take with equal seriousness the church's evangelistic responsibility. You are forgetting that God's way of saving men is to send out his servants, of whom I consider myself, to tell them the gospel, and that the church has been charged to go into all the world for that very purpose. Not only would we be wicked, slothful, unprofitable, and disobedient slaves to disregard the evangelistic imperative of our Lord laid out in the Great Commission, but we would also deprive ourselves of the high privilege of being the means by which he sovereignly performs his work of salvation. For God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give us an excuse for neglecting his orders. I beg you, sir, do not hinder me, but rather become a partner with me in this endeavor and pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That's Ephesians 6, 19. That's what I imagined William Carey to say in response to this, what's known as hyper-Calvinist. Someone who, well, they say that they were Calvinists, but they take things way too far. They take things to a point of, well, we believe God is so in control that we can ignore what he's told us to do because he's in control. This is not unique. We've had people leave our context because when they hear that we are Calvinistic, they think, well, you don't care about the lost. About 16 years ago or so, when we were at a different church, it was a Baptist church, not a Reformed Baptist, not a particular Baptist, just Southern Baptist. (coughs) There, um, I, I was teaching a a group of youth um, how to share their faith. I myself was fairly young in my faith, but um, it's always been uh, so much fun to share my faith. I've always loved doing it. And so I was teaching these kids how to to go up to people and talk to them about Jesus. Even had a few of them come with me uh, one night when I went downtown, just kind of walked the streets on a particularly busy night and shared the gospel with people. It wasn't particularly open-air preaching, but um, I was going up to people and asking them pointed questions and you know, saying, hey, do you know who Jesus is? <coughs> well, about uh, six months after this, one of these kids came back up to me. His name is Caleb Fordham. And he, he said, oh, man, Damien, at college we've been going through these classes, and, and it's, it's nothing like you said, but, man, I keep getting these groups of kids, and we're going out, and we're sharing our faith. And it's fantastic. And then he said, and there was this one teacher who said that, and I don't even remember what he said, but the point of the matter came to Calvinism. And I said, um, Caleb, don't you know I'm Calvinistic? I believe in all five points. 
This was right before we had to leave the church, specifically because we were Calvinistic. And he said, what? You're not a Calvinist. Yeah, I am. Absolutely I am. He's like, how can that be? You love to share your faith. Okay, I don't understand. I mean, at this point, I'd never heard of, of this hyper-Calvinism stuff. I'd never heard that, that people who love to love the fact that they were saved and wanted to share it with, with other people never heard that, well, if you're a Calvinist, you can't do that. But he was convinced that there's no way I could have been a Calvinist because of the fact that I love to share my faith. This is not unique. Many people still think that this is the case, that Calvinists don't care for the lost. We absolutely care for the lost. If we believe that God is sovereign, then we should also trust the means that he has ordained to bring people to faith. Not only that, but we shouldn't neglect his decree and his um, <clears throat> his command to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples. I mean, that was a command. It was an imperative. We must go because God is sovereign and he's in control of everything. If he's in control of everything, then whoever's elect is going to be saved no matter what I do or what I don't do. Mm -mm. <clears throat> it's not the case. <clears throat> so, I think we can pretty much sum up that yes, Calvinists, specifically those who are um, being honest about their Calvinism, do indeed care about the lost. <clears throat> now, this class, this whole uh, series of Sunday School classes, is called Go Therefore. Oh, I, did I? Yes, I did. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I did. It's, that belongs there. Yes. <laughs> it's called Go Therefore, okay? It's a study about how we can spread the gospel message, how we can share our faith. This is just, I think, a kind of draw you in, kind of, you know, let's get people excited about this class. Kind of, uh, I think we can answer that. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so, we then now need to talk about what are missions. Because if we're going therefore, we're talking about missions. Before we can talk about missions, we need to talk about mission. <clears throat> Has anyone heard the terms missiology or missio dei? I've heard of missio dei. You've heard of missio dei. Take a stab at telling us what that means. So many times. And so okay. Used it, I guess just the commission to make disciples. Um, okay. The Let's. Missions. 
Good try. Wrong. Good try. <laughs> Close. Tell me that's wrong. Anybody with a any sort of understanding of Latin can come up with what this means. Missio Dei. Yes. <laughs> The mission of God. Um, what about missiology? Say that again. Study of mission. The study of God's mission. Okay. <clears throat> Missio Dei translates as mission of God, and it's used to signify. All that God does in the world and all that he is doing to accomplish his objective. The complete exaltation of the fame of his name. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, I will be exalted among the nations. <clears throat> I will be exalted in the earth. So, missiology is the, is the doctrine or the study of the mission of God. <clears throat> God's mission is to redeem his people for his glory. The worldwide mission of God motivated his act of creation. He made the world so that people would have a place to live and to worship him. People didn't even exist yet. But he made it specifically so that people, his people, would have a place to live and to worship him forever. <coughs> From creation to consummation in the new heaven and the, and the earth, and everywhere in between we see the unfolding mission of God to seek and to save his people through Christ. Think we're being a little dogmatic about this? Well, let's see what uh, First Timothy uh, chapter one verses twelve through seventeen says. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance <coughs> that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus came, Jesus, I'm sorry, that Christ Jesus came into the world to, for the purpose of, in order to, because it was his mission to save 
sinners. Then in Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John 3, 13-17. Well, we know this one. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For, because, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For, because, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God has always been about the mission of salvation for our good and for his glory. You think, okay, wait a minute, how do we know that this was his mission from the very get-go? Okay. He created man and women, what? How did he create us? In his image. In his image and in his likeness. And then he told us to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Why? To bring glory to his name. And how do we know that for sure? Because when man started to disobey and started to say, ah, ah, we're not going to disperse. We're going to combine into one group of people and we're going to make a name for ourselves at the Tower of Babel. What do you do? Ah, ah, you're not doing that, people. I told you to do something and you are going to do it, whether you want to or not. So we confused their language, and guess what happened? They dispersed, just like God had told them to to begin with. It was his mission. To seek and to save his people and to spread his name through all the earth. To make a name for himself. Okay. So everywhere in between, we see the unfolding mission of God to seek and to save his people through Christ. <clears throat> Christ then goes on to say to us, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples. So what do we call that, that Jesus told us to do? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. What is a co-mission? The definition of co-mission, and there are a few, but specifically in this context, it's an order or an authorization for a personal organization to go and do something. 
God's mission, which is to seek and to save the lost, to make his name great, he has ordered us to do the same thing. He has given us the authority to preach his word. He has authorized us to share our faith. <clears throat> so what's another word for this? Sharing of our faith. I'll give you a hint. It's a word that strikes fear into the hearts of even the bravest of men and women. What's that? Evangelism. Why does it strike fear into our hearts? Has anyone ever been scared to share your faith? Afraid of rejection. Or being asked a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me ask you, based upon um, the rejection part of it, <coughs> do you think that they're rejecting you? Oh, they're rejecting God. I'm not rejecting you. And even if they were rejecting you, what's the big deal? We live in a sinful world. We know that we're going to be rejected. But that fear of rejection is real. Not knowing what we are to say if someone were to ask questions. We think that because it's such a high calling to share our faith, that we have to have every answer. We don't. We know what God has done for us. That's all we need to say. Keep in mind, we are not the ones who do the saving. It is exactly God's sovereignty in grace that allows us to share our faith without fear of having to know every answer. Because we are not the ones who do the same thing God is. <clears throat> so, Merriam-Webster defines the word evangelism as preaching the gospel. According to the New Testament, what is evangelism? Preaching the gospel. Okay. So then, in order for us to participate in this mission work, we need to evangelize. And in order to evangelize, we need to preach the gospel. That's it. Preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It must be a really difficult question because in a room full of believers, we can't answer it quickly. The gospel is basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay, great. You're absolutely right. Is there anything that you left out? The problem of sin. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ probably covers that because why would Christ have had to have died? But you're right. The problem is sin. There's this book that, frankly, the majority of my, my story about William Carey, uh, the points came out of here as well as a bunch of uh, scriptural study, but it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. <clears throat> it's by J.I. Packer. And uh, <coughs> let's see. The gospel is a message about God. The gospel is a message about sin. The gospel is a message about Christ. The gospel, with you, you've covered all those three points. The gospel is also a summons to faith and repentance. If you know that God exists and that he is sovereign and we have sinned and there is a redeemer, Christ, who died for our sins and yet you don't call someone specifically to believe that, you have not shared the gospel. There is a very simple six words that can be used to quickly sum up what the gospel is. It may seem too simple, but it really isn't. This is the gospel. Men can be reconciled to God. How is that enough? Well, we're saying that God exists. The fact that we say God in that word assumes that there is a God. The fact that we say reconciled in those six words means that, well, there's some reconciliation that's necessary. And if there's reconciliation that's necessary, that means that somehow we are opposed to or separated or alienated from or at enmity with God. The word can means that there is a definite way that this can be done. So it's very useful for us to remind ourselves what is necessary in the proclamation of the gospel proclamation of the gospel is that there is a holy God that we have sinned that there is a means by which we can be made right again with God that namely being Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross as well as his resurrection from the dead as well as his ascension into heaven where he sits on the throne constantly interceding for us. 
we can be reconciled to God. The last thing about this is, um, hey, you've got to believe this, or you've got to not to believe this, but you can't be on on the fence. I've told you what you need to be saved. Believe it or not. If we don't have those four points in our gospel presentation, then we are not sharing the gospel, and we're not really participating in the mission of God. What are the four things that people need to know in order to be saved? They have to believe to be born again. That there is the existence of a holy God. That they are not holy. That their sinfulness and the wrath of God is upon them. That the incarnation and the substitutionary atonement, both the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, as well as his um, in constant interceding for us, his ascension, and a summons to faith and repentance. Okay? So now that we have clear what the gospel is. <coughs> in order that we can participate in missions, why? What's our motivation? Why would we even bother? David talks about lighting an awful lot. I'm sorry? Like he li- David talks about lighting an awful lot. It seems like he likes it a little bit. Yeah. So he just he talks about it. He does? Not related to your question. Okay. It's completely related to his question. I know. Yeah. Greg's going to walk you right up to it. (laughs) The Bible says the love of Christ constrains us to do that. Right. Why do we love him? Because he has forgiven us. Because he first loved us. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Right? Okay. What's another reason? We love God. We love them. We love them. It's the fulfillment of the whole law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience is also another one. Absolutely. Because we've been called to, we are his mouthpiece to reconcile the world unto himself. Obedience means it's our duty. Not only is it our duty, it's also our delight. Who in here has ever experienced sharing the gospel with someone and them coming to faith? That is absolutely amazing. one of the people that that happened to was my dad. I shared the gospel with him and he believed. 
Do I think I had anything to do with his actual belief? Only in the fact that God used me as the means by which he heard the message and therefore believed. What a great privilege it is to know that he is with Christ. And then I will see him again. And we will be together with Christ. If you love people, you will want to share the good news. That they too can be saved. Every Christian is in some way involved in missions. We can't all be called missionaries. There's a specific group of people who are called missionaries. But we are all involved in the mission. Mothers and fathers who disciple their children. Bible study and Sunday school teachers who teach the church. Pastors and elders who shepherd the flock. And church planters and missionaries around the world are all witnesses and ambassadors of Christ. Though we are not all sent to other parts of the world, we are all on mission wherever we are, bearing witness to Christ to our friends, co-workers, and families, while also sending and supporting those who are called to go where the church sends them. The global mission of God is at the heart of our theology. God, in his sovereignty, has ordained the salvation of his people, and he has ordained the means <coughs> to that end. He tells us to go and preach, for how can the nations hear without someone preaching the gospel of Christ? That comes from, uh, um, what's that thing, the PDF that you sent us? The, the table talk. Like ta table talk. That comes from uh, an article in the table talk. Okay, so we've talked about motive for missions. <clears throat> what is the goal of missions? <clears throat> if missions is, or if the mission of God is central to everything that he's done. The saving of people to worship him for their good and his glory. What is the goal of missions? What is the end of missions? Or there's another way we could say what is the chief end of missions? Make disciples. Okay. Is get the gospel out and let the, and let God work through the gospel to reach people. Okay. You're, you're going exactly where I wanted you to go. It was kind of a trick question. But ultimately, what he told us, make disciples. But is that... Once the gospel goes out, once God uses, works through his word, converts sinners make disciples and repeat the process. Is that the chief end? 
Is that the whole purpose? Just so we can go make disciples? No. It's to glorify God. It's all for the glory of God. Nevertheless, and this is continuing from that Table Talk uh, article, nevertheless, the mission of God is fundamental to who we are and what we do, even though it is fundamental to who we are and what we do, it is not the ultimate end. The mission of God exists for the glory of God, so that families from every tribe, tongue, and nation will know, love, and worship God before his face forevermore. We could go to the, the Westminster Catechism on this one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of man. It's also the chief end of missions. So that we can participate in God's mission, which is to bring people into His family, redeem people out of this world, so that they can enjoy God forever. What happens to those who aren't called out? Are they going to enjoy God forever? So then, I know that uh, I said it was just really a catchphrase. And, you know, maybe uh, a little question to draw you in, but it really does have something to do with this class. In this whole series. Let's see. Does our orthodoxy, our proper theology, inform and change our orthopraxy? Our correct actions based upon our theology. If we are Calvinistic in our theology, in our soteriology, does that inform how we live? Of course. I shall try to show further that so far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not to be daunted by temporary setbacks. The fact that we are convinced of God's sovereignty means that we can spread the gospel indiscriminately and we can lay our heads on our pillow at night knowing that it was never up to us for those who were going to be saved who heard our message. We can trust that 
if God is sovereign, he's the one who's in control of every single thing, every single person who comes to faith. You don't believe that? Yeah, we do. You give thanks to God for your conversion, don't you? Why? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You pray for the conversion of others. Why? When you pray for unconverted people, you do so assuming that it is within God's power to bring them to faith. The fact that we believe in a sovereign God, the fact that we believe in a God who has elected people, doesn't make us shy away from evangelism. Makes us all the more want to be part of it. The sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. It should make us bold. It should make us patient. It should make us prayerful. Well, I think it can make us not that. I'm not saying it should. Okay. Explain. Well, and some of the people I've watched in YouTube videos and that deconstructed, I think part of this is like what the core of it is. It has to do with sovereignty of God. Where's my role? Where do I fit? Especially the people I love who don't believe. Mm -hmm. so there's like, it's like the straw and like these crumbles because there's not a lot to support it. And there's part of what, when you're talking about, it's like, you know, that we could speak uh, with courage and all that. <clears throat> but I think there's another part of it too where it's like, I don't have to because God will take care of it. Mm -hmm. And there's like, a, happened in New York, like in the 70s, I can't remember the name of the phenomenon, but it's essentially like when there's an emergency situation, why you don't say, hey, somebody take care of this. You like actually point to someone's like, hey, you go call them. Because what they found is, it's kind of happening today again, but there's something happening every just block, just go listen to so I think that there's a there's a component of it where we can assume God or somebody else can take care of it, so no pressure on me, which is probably not the appropriate way to look at it. But the people who don't think that way, I think we're making a different mistake. I think both of them are mistakes. The other people are like, it's on me for my friend to believe in it. He doesn't. Either I didn't do it well enough or God doesn't really care, and then they have like this deconstruction thing. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, you know, there's a conversation in that. It, it's like, should, yes, but the reality is what we actually think and do with mm -hmm. what you're speaking of. It, it unravels or it inhibits all of us in different ways. So the guy who said to William Carey, sit down, young man, when God desires to save the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. He was right. From his perspective, he was absolutely right because he believed in the total sovereignty of God. 
but he was neglecting something. The means that God has ordained in order to bring about the salvation of his people. Right? So, what you're saying is right, Ron. Absolutely it's right. We hear these things, or we see a situation, and we're like, okay, somebody else will take care of it. I trust that God is going to take care of it. That's great that we believe in his sovereignty. But if we believe in his sovereignty so much that we neglect what he has told us to do, go into all the world and preach the gospel. As far as I'm aware, that scripture, that command, was not given only to the missionaries. It's given to all of us. So, yeah, you're right. There's the argument that people are going to think, oh, somebody else has got that under control. I'll let somebody else handle it. But by doing that, we're neglecting the fact that we have been commanded to do it. I think maybe one of the missing links to what you were saying, somebody who's just deconstructed because they've shared their faith and people don't believe them, so their faith is unraveled because of them. The missing element to that is the sin of the lost and their rejection of God. Like that's, God is sovereign and he is the one who saves people, but they are responsible for rejecting him, Mm -hmm. for not believing. Yep. What is the next verse following 317? I don't have it up. John 318? Somebody? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The, the rejection of the message of the gospel is on that person. They are condemned. Why? Because they did not believe in the Son of God. The opposite side of your coin, Ron, of I'm going to trust that someone is going to take care of this. And it's all on me. If I don't do this, that person is lost. I've had that experience before. I've gone out to evangelize people, and I've gone out under my own power to do it, and I came back dejected and just completely wiped out emotionally, physically, spiritually, because, <coughs> man, I forgot to say this. Oh, why did I get so argumentative with him? Why didn't I do it this way? It's in those moments that I was forgetting that I wasn't the agent of salvation. The Holy Spirit is. In that moment, I thought I was being the Holy Spirit. Duh, that is stupid. But it happens. So basically what we have to Hold intention. There are two things here that for some reason are true, but we can't 
contemplate. We can't understand. We can't grasp how can both of these possibly be true. That is that God is in control of absolutely everything. And man, in his choice, actually means something. If God is in control, and someone doesn't believe, how can those two things be together? It's a mystery that we, in our feeble minds, cannot comprehend. How two things that are apparently diametrically opposed actually work together. I'm okay with there being things that I don't understand. Um, frankly, if I did fully understand it, if I could say that I fully understood how God makes those two things work, then I am saying that I fully understand God, and if that's the case, then I've made God after my own image. I haven't understood that he is completely other than us. And that we are made in his image, not the other way around. That's the beginning of our class. Should be fun. Hey, uh, Damien. So I'm teaching next week. I've got some homework for you guys. Simple homework. Um, two things. If you can think about the person or the moment that um, you heard about Christ and believed it and what that person or moment said to you. So, you know, for some, it could be a, um, a conference or something like that. But just sit back and see, see if you can boil down kind of what was the... What did they say that actually allowed you to believe? I know I'm speaking, you know, obviously it was the Lord, we'll put all those footnotes aside, but like, well, who's the person and what was being said in the moment that you believed? And then the second one is do some research and tell me next week whether light is a particle or a wave. <laughs> and we'll discuss why next week. Hey. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For the joy of your salvation, thank you for rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Father, thank you for allowing us to participate in your mission, to be the means by which people hear the good news and you sovereignly save them. That is absolutely tremendously enjoyable for us to be able to participate with you. Lord, thank you so much for the, the ministry of reconciliation. And we get to tell people that they too can be reconciled to a holy God. Give us boldness to do that because of our knowledge of your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray.